is the Enter Sad Men Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Welcome along to the Enter Sad Men Podcast. Indeed, the very first Enter Sad Men Podcast. A nostalgic ramble down Hard Rock's memory lane. In the company of me, Steve Davis, and my two hard-rocking amigos, Mark Norman and Richard Napstein. Now then, between the three of us, over the coming weeks, months, indeed almost certainly years, we plan to go back to what we consider to be heavy metal's golden age, a period from ooh, 1969, 1970 onwards, with the purpose of discovering, revisiting the very many albums that we firmly believe should get into any self-respecting rocker's hall of fame. So, as I say, we're into Sad Men. Richard, how are you? Marvellous. Thank you, Steve. Excellent. So, go on then. Tell us why. Why are we into Sad Men? Yeah, well, this all comes from uh, an event that we do far too infrequently, the three of us, mm-hmm. called a sad night. The uh, purpose of a sad night is to get together, spend time with each other, and above all, just play some absolutely stonking music to each other. The term sad night was actually coined by my lovely wife when uh, I would I would announce that uh, I was uh, you know, getting together with Mark and Steve to uh, play some songs, and she said, what, you're going to have another one of your sad nights then, are you? And uh, that was probably about 20 years ago. And, and, and it, it stuck. That's what it is. So, uh, you know, we, we, we talk again and again about our, uh, planning our annual sad night. Uh, this year, we were going to have it just a few weeks ago uh, in, in March. Uh, but due to the horrible events around the world at the moment early in 2020, we were unable to do it so we started to come up with the idea of doing this virtually so that's the sad night and obviously it's a short jump from uh the sad night to sad men because uh, that's what we are and uh dear steve came up with the idea that we should be called enter sad men these are the enter sad men podcasts uh and our enter sad men uh website so um I mean, when we get together for sad nights, we we generally try and choose a theme. I mean, themes of the past um, have been um, the heavy metal Grand National. We've had a theme uh, called the FA Cup. Uh, A stands for awesome. I'll leave our audience to guess what the F stands for. Um, and themes of years, themes of genre, subgenres within rock. Um, I mean, crumbs. We've um, we've done it all. The League of Nations. Uh, the list goes on, um, but for and, and for these podcasts, uh, we are going to choose a theme. Uh, we'll choose three albums uh, from that theme, and we'll review them. I mean, Mark, this this came from an idea you and Steve had as well around um, uh, around around sort of halls of fame and lists. Yeah, and we're so um, analog. We were so analog that the idea originally was that Steve and I were going to write a, a book. Uh, about the 500 heavy metal or hard rock albums that every self-respecting rock fan should own. And of course, that was many, many moons ago because the kind of 2020 equivalent of that, digital equivalent of that, is what we're doing right now. So yes, the idea was that we wanted to write a definitive history and people listening to this might think, well, what have these three old farts got that qualifies them to talk about this in such a sort of um, 
an authoritative way. Well, I, I worked out that actually between us, we've been listening to this music for 120 years. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and and so um, the authority that we have is that it's a genre that we love and that we have spent a lot of time and, and money investing in. So this isn't us telling you, you know, what is good and what is bad. This is us telling you what we think is good and what we think is well, there's not going to be any bad stuff in there. Whether they get, whether they all get into the Hall of Fame, who knows? And um, uh, as with kind of most things in rock, there are no real rules. Um, the only rule that we do have, I think, is we won't be talking about compilation albums. So, yeah, three albums a week for however many weeks we can draw breath, and at the end of each episode, we will give the albums that we've talked about a score and then we will decide whether or not they enter the hall of fame that sounds absolutely spot on what a great idea for a podcast okay it's time to stop talking we need to get on with the show we have decided that the first episode of the enter sad men podcast is going to be the first album you bought with your own money and kicking this off from 1978 is the Debut album, self-titled album from Van Halen. Opening album sleeve notes. We've talked about it for long enough. Here we are. I am ridiculously excited. How about you two? Oh, yes. Can't wait. Yeah, no, absolutely looking forward. How can you not be excited about talking hard rock with my chums? Raring to go. So, um, I mean, we should say what the three albums are, I suppose. So, Steve, um, this episode of the podcast is... The first album you bought with your own money, right? It is. And yeah, the album yeah. I have chosen is, uh, well, not because I've chosen it, because I bought it, was Van Halen. The debut album, 1978. Indeed so. And Richard? Yeah, the first album, rock album I bought with my own money was uh, yeah, uh, ACDC's Highway to Hell. And my choice, my choice was, um, well, it wasn't a choice, as Steve says, it was... Uh, pretty much um defined the moment i hand over my money was uh, british steel by judas priest so a bit of black country metal uh so um these three albums i haven't listened to british steel in throughout for oh god years years and i and i remember also with van halen i remember bringing that album home when i bought it and um it, uh, that opening, the opening track, Running With The Devil, just blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. So we're going to start off by talking about that one, aren't we? Well, yeah. And I, well, I'll school. tell you what, while we're still in conversational mood, I was thinking, can you think, and I'll put this one open to the floor and you can think about it, take as long as you want. Have you ever come across a song quite like Running With The Devil, which not only defines the start of an album, but the start of a band? I mean, that is Van Halen in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think amongst yourselves of, of great opening tracks. I'm not talking about opening album, opening career tracks that would go on to be kind of, you know, passwords, sort of footnotes to what that band was all about. Because um, I certainly think uh, Running With The Devil is that. Oh, it, it totally and, is. So, and also, while you're, while you're thinking of that, well, I'll tell you what, so I'll kick off with Van Halen, as I say. It, it was the first album... Um, I bought, although it wasn't an album, it was a tape, I hasten to add, because um, I didn't get my stack until 1984. Um, so I bought this on tape. 
Um, and I didn't even buy it in 78, which is when it was released. It was released in February 1978, produced by Ted Templeman, um, and I bought it in 1980. And it was my first... There's a reason why, and I'll bring that up in a minute. And it was our first introduction into the world of Messrs. Van Halen, Van Halen, Michael Anthony, and the magnificent David Lee Roth. And my other question I was going to ask you boys was, and again, think about it all night, but rock is full of huge rock stars. We know that. But how many bands do you know where they've got two such enormous personalities as Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth? There's one for later on. <laughs> Give that some thought. Because what I was saying is, because I was just thinking, you know, these boys are the massive personalities. And I was thinking of Led Zeppelin with Page and Plant. Would they go into, would they fit in that category? Yeah, they absolutely would. Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley? Yeah. I was going to think, I was thinking Guns and Roses, but just having a silly hat and a cigar and a cigarette out the corner of your mouth doesn't make you a massive personality. Um, so there's another talking point. Um, and, and again, while you're thinking of that, and we'll come on to the album in a minute. So this is all about my musical upbringing, because I wasn't into hard rock as a kid um, at all. So... Let's go to 1979 when I got my first tape cassette player um, and a, a couple of tapes bought for me by my parents, I'm sure. Um, and I remember them with Supertrank, Breakfast in America and ELO Discovery. Fine albums, the pair of them. But I had no real knowledge. I was at school. I was into sort of the, the, the punk, goth thing, but largely indifferent. Um, until a couple of lads asked me in June 1980, if I wanted to go to a concert in two weeks' time, and I kind of smelled a rat, I was thinking two weeks' time, so I really am last choice here, aren't I? Someone has dropped out um, of this concert that they were going to go and see in Finsbury Park at the Rainbow. And I said, who is it? I said, Van Halen. I said, right, okay, I'd love to. I need some friends, so I'll come with you. And um, so I had two weeks to cram up on Van Halen, basically. Went out, got the denim jacket, had the hair. The hair was safe. I was fine with that anyway. Went out and got the denim jacket and a VH flying patch to go in the middle of it. Lots of other patches of bands I'd never heard of, like Angel Witch and Saxon and things like that. Um, and then I went out and bought three albums on tape, as I say, using a um, newspaper round money for a tenner. I'm sure you could get three tapes for a tenner back in the day. Went through the tape racks or Van Halen, Van Halen 2. Thought they're not trying very hard here, are they? Women and children first. That's better. Um, and I bought all three. I obviously played them in chronological order and um, stuck on Van Halen. And that was my first hearing of Van Halen. And, well, what an album. What an album. And what an introduction to um, the guitar playing of Eddie Van Halen. Um, and I'm pretty sure, I mean, this album, uh, it's all about Eddie. We know it is um, because... Uh, I mean, Mark, am I right in thinking we, we've not kind of seen that kind of guitar playing before at that stage from anyone quite as fast and dazzling as that? Would that be correct? Yeah, absolutely. But, um, I, mean, I suppose you could argue we had started. Well, I suppose you could argue Angus Young was yeah. kind of around, wasn't he? But, yeah. But no, I mean, not with the... I think the thing about Eddie Van Halen is that he had such enormous range in yeah. his repertoire in a way that you could argue Angus didn't and doesn't. Actually. Yeah. Richard, whether you agree with that? Yeah. He, well, he was, so not since who? Probably, probably since Hendrix, in my view, in terms of uh, the stuff he was doing 
so he was, he, what was he, 21? Um, playing around in his bedroom, yeah. uh, experimenting. I mean, it, yeah. Yeah, he, 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 he customised and made his own guitars. That's right. You know, these Fra- Frankenstrat, whatever it was called. And, That's correct, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Took pickups was- out, rewired them. He was 22 when they recorded this album. 22. Yeah. But and not a showman. He wasn't a showman. He, I mean, he made oh, that. He was a shy boy. Um, but he just came to life with a guitar in his hand. Yeah, I misunderstood that. I, assuming like like things like Eruption, it was all just um, here. I'm showing off. Yeah. Actually, it was just him noodling, and uh, they had. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was interesting that you mentioned Hendrix, Rich, because. Because we know Eddie Van Halen for this tapping technique, don't we, that, um, that, that, that all guitarists know about, and I don't. Um, I, I have tried to learn the guitar recently, and my son gave me the four chords I required to play Wonderwall, and I figured if I can crack that, that's probably one more than Mick Mars learned throughout his entire career. So, But, you know, <laughs> I'm finding it harder than I thought. So I'm not going to sit here and, and judge Eddie's guitar playing, but I do know, and I'm sure you'll agree, he divides opinions, doesn't he? There are those who say this bloke's just sensational and there was um, a pioneer for what followed. And certainly a lot of other guitarists, like you think of sort of Vi and Malmsteen and that, I mean, they were clearly inspired by him. But he in turn says that he was inspired by many, many guitarists. He, he wasn't a pioneer as such, and that tapping technique had been done before. Um, but there are critics who say that, well, I love this quote from one. It's, it's, not a, it's just a quote I saw on the bottom of the forum. It said, there's far more skill to being a, to being a guitarist than simply being able to navigate wildly around the neck, which you know, fair enough. But the, the, the bottom line is the bloke's an extraordinary guitarist, and and you can be as ponty about it as you like. Just listening to that is is phenomenal. And and are his solo sophisticated? Do you know what? I don't actually care. Are, are they fast? Yes, they are. Is he right for the band? Yes, I think he is. Um, and this band was. When this band broke onto the scene in '78, if you if, if you think about it, that there was very there was nothing like that in this country, was there? It's no wonder, for example, that Gene Simmons championed them, is there? Because there's a lot of the showman about them, a lot of Hollywood about them. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, it is. And Gene uh, Gene Simmons, I think I'm right in saying, on I that he funded their demo. The, the, That's the right. Demo. He did it for them, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, clearly there was. There was always something about the band, and mm. if you, you know, if you were, I don't know, they played the whiskey a lot, didn't they? Um, in West yes. Hollywood, they played the whiskey a go go, and they were almost a resident band there for a while. And I guess if you, you know, if you, if you were, ter- if you were, I don't know, sixteen, seventeen, well, probably a bit older than that, um, in Hollywood at the time, and you turn up at the whiskey and you see Dave Lee Roth, yeah, and Van Halen in a in a venue that maybe holds. I don't know, a couple of hundred, couple of hundred people. I mean, that must have been phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that brings me, and that brings me to part two of this extraordinary double act. Because I remember when I first saw them, when I went to that concert back in the day at the Rainbow in Finsbury Park, I always said, I've said it at the time, and I've said it since. I went to a concert and I finished up at church because I went there to, to to watch a band, and I finished up just worshiping this bloke. I mean, because I was fifteen at the time, and David Lee Roth. I mean, if you want to rock God, they just don't come any more godly than that, do they? I mean, the presence of the man, you've got to agree. Oh, completely. I mean, I, I, 
did, did either of you see, I'm sure, I think, Steve, you did. Did you see the, when they appeared at um, Donington, Monsters of Rock in 84, they did an old grey whistle test, mm-hmm. um, an old grey whistle test thing. Now, Van Halen that day were the special guests on the bill, which ACDC headlined. And they went backstage and did this interview with, I think it was, um, was Roth and it was Alex Van Halen. And he just stole the show, just talking. Yeah. Didn't yeah. do any, anything other than talk, but he just yeah. had, the, as, a, as a television viewer, you were kind of eating out the palm of his hand, but Andy Kershaw, who did the interview, is eating out the palm of his hand. Yeah, I bet. That bloke could take an audience of one or mm. 100,000 or a million yeah. and just entertain them. He was huge, or he is, yeah. uh, you know, he's, you know, Fair, with all due respect, Dave, you know, he's he's a bit past it now. But <laughs> in his pomp, my yeah. God. Yeah, I saw that show at Donington. They were he was just astonishing. Yeah. But he was always he always made the point that he was I love that quote when he was once asked, When you started singing, were you any good? And he said, I always knew I was gonna be a rock and roll singer. It never occurred to me whether or not I was any good. And isn't that <laughs> the point? <laughs> Because many would say, many would say he's, not a, he's not a great vocalist, and I get that. And um, but do, do, again, do I care? No, of course I don't. Is he right for the band? Absolutely. I mean, those the, the, the six albums. Well, we're not going to go into this. I'm sure we will, Mark, because we'll have a row about it at some point. Van Halen stopped after six albums, as you well know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Laying a marker. Okay. Yeah. So let's so let's talk about album one, shall we? And um, now, interestingly, it sold. It's not their best-selling album, and that's understandable because 1984. And it didn't. Um, and it didn't. It didn't ignite straight away. And I maintain that the reason for that, and and it's not just me. A lot of people maintain that the reason for that is they chose the wrong first single. Even Eddie Van Halen suggests that. What was the first single? Well, there you go. I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Um, they chose. You really got me. And you're thinking, well, hang on a minute. And Eddie made the point, we've got to give them, we've got to give them one of our own songs. Because the first single came out three weeks before the album. And all they've done, basically, while it's a very good cover of a Kink song, it is just that, isn't it? It's a cover. And um, it didn't showcase Van Halen when the obvious one was, uh, was running with the devil or a pinch um, ain't talking about love. So that, that, that seemed like a blunder at the time. Would you agree? It was more accessible. I mean, I'd argue yeah. it. it did it showcase them? I think it did. Um, in terms it wasn't of just a straight cover, was it? No. Oh no! Oh no! 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 No. I mean, Ray Ray Davis says he prefers it to the Kinks original. I know he did. Yeah, yeah. I, but it, that question actually, I think, is really interesting because as I was listening, as I've been listening to this over the last week or so, yeah, you know, and and all, all three on rotation, and listening to the ones that came before where there was one before and the ones that came after you listen to to van halen and you go i, I was sat there thinking that is really really brave actually you start off with your own song yeah then then you have essentially what a, a guitar solo by an unknown yeah. guitarist yeah 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 then you have a cover version of a yeah. standard yeah then you're into i ain't talking about love and then before the end they're doing a, a cover of a, a bluegrass, you know, novelty song, effectively. And you just think, 
Yeah, is there a, there are what eleven tracks on that album, and you've there chosen are. you've chosen three yeah. that are either unconventional or not your own. That's, yeah, and, and, and well, they're basically they're basically saying we're Van Halen, and you know what, we'll do what the hell we want, and and that's exactly what they did. And also the, the, the other point about cover, of course, if there was ever if there was ever a band that was going to do a cover version as a single as an opening single, it would have been Van Halen, wouldn't it? Given how many they did, I mean, Diver Down had five on, I think, or six. And David Lee Roth later on, as a solo artist, as you know, he, he he did like a cover version. And he always made the point that he was a massive Kinks fan. And when they were warming up and, and practicing back in the day before they made it, you know, Kinks songs were, 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 were standard tracks in their sort of sessions. So I get all that. And and it's and as Rich, you say, Rich, I mean, it's no ordinary cover, is it? It's, it's, it's a superb song in its own right. Them, Templeman, Warner Brothers, um... I presume realised they here was something was something potentially pretty special, but they didn't know just how massive it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, so they thought, oh well, well, let, well let's if if this is yeah this this is a bit accessible, it's a good cover. We'll 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 stick that out first. Yeah. Uh, and then of course the whole thing went absolutely ballistic. Yeah, uh, and you're right. They couldn't they couldn't have second guessed that because if you think of if 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 the comparable bands at the time were Aerosmith, who I think were on the decline, weren't they, before they re-emerged again, and Kiss, who were kind of slightly different anyway, and there was nothing in England that was coming along like this lot, they were always, they just had to get it right, and they were going to be massive, weren't they? Um, and yeah, and you could, well, you certainly wouldn't argue they got it wrong. I just, every time I listen to Running With The Devil, um, I just think it is Van Halen in those three minutes 30 odd seconds everything about the rap about the band is wrapped up in there you've got the towering guitar so roth squealing screeching and haying all over the place there's a little the little thoughtful interlude where eddie plays a bit soulfully and it chugs michael anton is backing vocals of course which are massively underrated um yes and they chug and that's what they do also his bass playing's underrated as well and and van hayden eddie later got quite critical in that kind of old, gnarled, old rock star way about Michael Anthony. But I think he was a brilliant bass player. Um, the, the, the rhythm section of that band was phenomenal. And I just thought Running With The Devil just chugged. It just chugged beautifully. And I think they went on to chug as a band. Um, it's a great track. But do you not think, <clears throat> the two of you, I just consider this for a moment. I, I think you could put any of their original songs from that album on any Van Halen album, it is absolutely timeless. Well, it, 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 this is my favourite Van Halen album. I, I'd, I'd agree. I don't think anything they did since uh, that betters this in terms of the collection of songs, the variety, the the impact, and it's just so. I mean, it, it's completely raw and unspoiled. I could just get the impression that Ted. Yeah, Tucker, I get that. Um, let them do whatever they did and and then just brought the, the the most out of it i mean i read that they um they recorded it essentially live um yeah didn't know how to they they, they, they didn't know how to I, I think it was it was i think gene simmons was was encouraging them to lay stuff down track by track and saying to eddie oh yeah you can do the rhythm parts first and then you do the lead parts on this track and he's saying what do you mean i just play my guitar 
and and so and and so when they went to record it, it was all recorded live in one studio with with Dave Lee Roth in a in a soundproof booth, you know, within that same studio, and they just cracked it out live. So again, well, think about that. So this stuff that you're hearing, you say that. Ch- I mean, that I agree with you, Steve, about um, Anthony's bass playing. I mean, Atomic Punk is on now as we're yeah. listening to this. It, it, um, it wasn't until I was listening to this album a few times through headphones, I realised just how good his bass line is yeah. on Atomic Punk. And again, the timing of him with what Alex is doing, it absolutely yeah. cracking. And I think, you know, and so all, and this was all played live. And Michael Anthony, I think around the time, it was not long after the release, he said, basically, we didn't have many songs. So we just basically took our live set yeah. and played it in the studio. So they had yeah. been playing these songs yeah. anyway. It wasn't like, you know, the, a band comes out of the studio, they go on tour, and then they come back off tour, and then they have some time to write, and then they get together, and then they rehearse in the studio, or they rehearse before they get to the studio, but they don't really know the songs. These guys knew these songs inside out, um, because they played them every night, night after night after night. And what you hear on this album is essentially them live. It's an astonishing album. In all sorts of ways, it's really, it's really, it's really funny listening to this conversation because we, we've never, we've never conversed in such depth about any album. Well, that's not quite true, but certainly not this album anyway. And as I was doing this, and with with, with joy and glee that, that I was able to review this album, my first album, because I love it to bits. And I was actually going to be quite honest. And, well, I, well, I will be honest. It's not my favourite Van Halen album. I, I, it's three or four on the list, but just just listening to your boyish enthusiasm for it has reminded me just quite how belting it really, really was. And maybe I'm maybe I'm looking at it through 2020 eyes, and I should be remembering exactly what it was all about in 1978. And it and it is a it is a tour de force in in many many ways. And I'm being slightly you know churlish about songs like, for example, um, I'm the one, which doesn't overly excite me or fairly love tonight doesn't overly excite me but i shouldn't be should i because they're all part of the, of the whole product aren't they which which was phenomenal by any measure now i've played this album a few times that vocal melody is in my head all the blooming <laughs> time yeah uh, and it's uh, it yeah I, I i think i'd agree with you about i think i'm the one is for me is the the weak no, i mean not a weak track but the, yeah yeah in, but by what it's up against what um, probably the, the the weakest for me on the album, but but again the, the, the variety, the again the the, the, um, the harmonies on here, and again that's, I, I always assumed it was David Lee Roth doing the the higher um, harmonies, it's, but it's Michael Anthony. He brought yeah, that, it's brought to their sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one one other track to show to talking about surprising vocals. If that, that's surprised, one other track I must talk about and. Well, we'll talk about more obviously. Little Dreamer, um, which I think it's kind of almost understated, isn't it? It's just tucked away before something more eye-catching. I just think everyone knows about you know Roth the Showman, the Show-off, but th- th- there was another cooler, more gentle side to him, and I don't think he's given the credit he deserves as a vocalist. He's we, we know what he is. He's he's all hoopla and 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 you know whoops and squeals and that. 
So there's a real, te in Little Dreamer, I, I just think it's an absolute belter, a real hidden gem. And there's a the real sort of delightful tenderness in, 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 yeah. in Diamond Day's voice. And he delivers that song to absolute perfection. It's a really, really lovely listen. But almost, before you talk about it, it's almost like he, then he seems to say, right, I'm really sorry about that. This one's called Ice Cream Man. And he's back <laughs> into, you know what I mean? And he's back into type. Um, but it's a great song. I, do you know what? It's really interesting you say that. Little Dreamer is my favourite song on this album. Ah, there you go. And, and the reason I think it is, is because it is um, beautifully delivered and beautifully yeah. handled. Yeah. And it's got exactly the right balance of instrumentation through it. He doesn't go into histrionics with it. There's no, it's effortless, actually, as a vocal delivery, I think. Um, and, and if you listen to this, uh, and I, mean, I haven't done this, but I think it'd be interesting to listen to this and then listen to Damn Good. Yes. And, and just listen to the, I think, in my head, my memory muscle is telling me this is that's a very similar listening experience i think it, well it, it so first off he's 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 dropped it an octave or whatever hasn't yeah. he so it, it, there's no there's no it, it is that so he's actually singing a lot lower and again yeah so yeah and that's on damn good as well isn't it yeah and, the, and then as you say the, the on this one they're not filling every available space with something they're letting the the, the whole song breathe a lot more are you saying then that i'm the one is the weak you both agreed. I'm the one as the weak link. It, it's it's all relative, but it would it would if I was marking it out of ten, which I do believe I'm 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 contractually obliged to do at some point, then um, it it would be my it would be my lowest scorer on the album. But a bad track, not in the least. No, far from it. So, if that was going to score the lowest, yeah, which which is the one that scores the highest? Uh, well, it, it's, it, there's a there's a tie for me, which is running with the devil and ain't talking about love because um, I don't know what it is. Whenever I, as soon as I got Spotify and started creating my own playlist, I just seem to always be drawn to including ain't talking about love. It's just one of those. It's it's ludicrously simple, and they admit as much, don't they? Um, yeah. I, I, I absolutely think this track of the album. I love it to bits. It's just it's just perfect. It was a. It was supposed to be a punk parody, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I think the band was surprised by just how well that particular track was received. Hmm. So, what's your track of the album then, Mark? Little Dreamer. Highs and lows. Uh, so, Little Dreamer, and closely, very closely followed by, and talking about love, actually, and and then I then I would say running with the devil, but. Uh, the low for me is on fire. I think that's. Mm -hmm. I think it's marginal. I know what you, I. I completely get what you're saying about. I'm the one, but I think just the bounce factor, in that, kind of just edges it, for me. Yeah. Okay. Rich. Be best track for me is. Uh, ain't talking about love. Listen to the bass and the drums in it. Um, so it. it, it Everyone thinks about Eddie's riffs, but listen to it again and just listen, focus on the bass and drums. It, 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 it's amazing. And I think the, the, um, just the structure of the song and particularly that, 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 that quiet break in the middle before yeah. it all builds up again. It, 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 yeah. it I think it's just, per it's a perfectly structured song, which is why for me that edges it as the best song on the album from, uh, Running the Devil. This album was the fourth longest 
on the UK chart of all of their albums. Uh, and that's not just because it's been out for the longest either. It was yeah, yeah. on release. It was, uh, although, although kind of British audiences, I don't think have really heard anything like this when it came out. Um, it stayed on the stayed on the uh, chart for eleven weeks on release. So, um, not not a bad calling card, was it? No, no, absolutely. What just what just astonishes me is. It was recorded in 1977. Yeah. Yeah. It's just... <laughs> okay, so here's a question then. If this album... Try to forget what you know and try to forget what you feel. This album gets released in May 2020. Oh, that... Mark, that's so... That's... Oh, what a swerveball. See, I think... I think it still stands up now. With us, it would. We we get it, and I, I think if we'd have got it then, we'd get it now. Yeah, that's. A good I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not sure. Commercial. I'm not commercial appeal. Don't know. Don't know. Within the genre. Now, I mean, the, a more interesting question is perhaps: Would they even be signed now, or, but on the basis of this album? Oh, Dave, Dave would talk his way into it. He'd have no trouble. <laughs> Steve, you were talking earlier about um, you know, Eddie and influences and whatever. What, I read, I just found it now, it, it, he talks about one of his biggest influences uh, in his guitar playing being Eric Clapton. Yeah, I know. And Steve, uh, Steve Hackett was another one. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And he, he couldn't be more dissimilar, I wouldn't have thought. But, the, the, but this is the thing. I think you. I, I, I might have made this up in my head i thought that one of his great influences as a guitarist was mozart Oof. now i could have made that up completely there's something in the back of my mind that says i read an interview once with him and because if you listen to his guitar work it's actually very classical you know if you slowed that down yeah, no, yeah. oh well yeah i mean yeah yeah and anyway, I, I, I can wank happily next week over women and children first. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually prefer as an album Van Halen Two. Oh, do you? Yeah, that was that to me. That's their reload. Do you think? Yeah, I do. I think that's their offcuts. Ah, oh, interesting. If, if, if you like one, you'll like two. If you like two, you'll think one was better. I just I've always thought that. Yeah, yeah. and there's enough goodness on it. Don't get me wrong, but um, don't get me wrong. I might now go out and listen to Van Halen too, because I've only listened to Van Halen two once. Okay. So I might change my mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, of the six albums that Van Halen did, that would probably <laughs> be. Um... <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a great episode when we introduce when we introduce fifty one fifty. I tell you, That's I'll be good be... as gold. I'll be good as gold. <laughs> Just tell me, have you listened to it? Fifty-one fifty. Yeah. Yeah, of course I have. Yeah. Have you listened to all of the Hagar albums? No. No. Okay. I, I, um, no, no, no. I don't know why I'm coming in Ari. Then no. <laughs> I think that's going to be a really interesting journey for you. Yeah, well, it'll be that'll be that'll be a, a week and a half, won't it? Listen to that for a show. Yeah, that's all right. That's fine. That's, I like fifty-one. I've liked fifty-one fifty. I've always said that. I just, um, you know, it's just it's not Van Halen. 
It's Sammy Hagar, isn't it? <laughs> the Hagar Halen band. <laughs> Brilliant. Hagar Halen. <laughs> okay, we need to move on. You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. So that's Van Halen done. That's one down, two to go. So, Richard, talk us through Highway to Hell. Opening album sleeve notes. So we've we've dispatched Van Halen with plaudits, gongs, and I think probably, it's fair to say, entry into the Hall of Fame. If you're going to follow that album with any album, then the next one is probably the one to follow it with. So this was your first album, the first album you bought, Richard. So introduce Highway to Hell. It's um, late 1979. I'm on a bus. I'm going to Cambridge with my mum shopping. And um, in Cambridge, there's a, uh, a market. And uh, on the market, there's a store uh, called Andy's Records. Back then, they, they didn't have any shops. Um, it was just a big market store full of vinyl. And if you wanted a record, you went to Andy's Records. And uh, I can't, I was trying to rack my brains about where I'd, I'd heard the title track. I can't remember if it was on the radio or a, a mate bought it for me um, or also played it to me. But I, I, on the on the strength of this of the title track, I thought I've got to get this album. Uh, I hadn't really heard much ACDC really at all. Um, and I say I'm like Steve, and I, I was. Um, this was the time where I, I was into you know I was into punk and my new wave and you know my Sham '69 and the Jam and all that kind of stuff. This was this just was the thing that got me into into rock. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I was it wasn't a, a, a conscious decision. I mean, I, I, how close is it to punk and stuff like that? I mean, it's got a certain rawness about it, hasn't it? Um, but yeah, anyway, so so I mean, I, I went to Andy's Records. Um, I had this in mind. Bought, bought it. Yeah, in the carrier bag back on, back home on the bus kept getting it out mum told me to put it away because she didn't want some little fellow with horns on being displayed to the whole of the rest of the bus um and 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 to this to this day uh she, she tells me about the fact that you know because i stored my records in alphabetical order <laughs> angus was always staring out from the, end of the record <laughs> rack across the room um i mean and, and then you know you, you talk about not having a a, a, a tape, yeah, not even a record player. But we, so we, we had a we had a record player, but it was but it was one shared by all the family. You should have bought some accept. <laughs> <laughs> any, any any particular one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, restless and wild. <laughs> and 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 it would have been ahead of ACDC in alphabetical order. Yeah. So so yeah, it it. Uh, it I mean, what, what's interesting about these three albums that we've, you know, we've, we've each chosen are, I mean, for me, I've loved this last um, week, listened to them again and again and again, because they are each the favourite album of mine of each of these bands. Ah, that's oh. interesting. So the, and I mean, the, this album, <clears throat> this day, 
is my favourite ACDC record. Um, I think you know why. What's what's so amazing about it? I think the the starts and the builds of most of the tracks are just absolutely unbelievable. We we can talk. We, we'll talk in a minute. I'm sure about the uh, impact that that John Lange had on them. Um, but I mean, Highway to Hell. I mean. Um, walk all over you the way that just slowly builds and builds and builds and in the end just beats you round the head um, I think secondly um, what, what what I love about this album is the variety of, of, of songs on it um, I, mean, I mean I'll challenge either of you about where has there been an album before or since where ACDC have got that this combination of, you know, say that like the, the belters of Highway to Hell or If You Want Blood, the upbeat ones like, um, you know, Girls Got Rhythm and Get It Hot the, to the sinister of, of Night Prowler. Um, that's just ever so slightly scary if you listen to it on, on your own in the dark. Um, uh, Love Hungry Man is almost a ballad I think it's about as close as ACDC get to a ballad, and then and then touch too much is just is just downright dirty. And I think for me it, it was, and again I suppose John Lange got this got this out of him, um, but it, it was it was the best set of vocal performances that Bond ever gave in his life. Um, so I think he was tamed a bit by. Uh, by Matt Lange, um, in just in terms of the, if you listen to the tracks, you know closely, his vote, he, he's not just belting it out on every one. Um, you know his attitude, there's desperation, there's self-deprecation. He's restrained and he's sinister. Um, so yeah, it, it, it remains to this day, um, well, one, one of my favourite albums ever, and uh, and the best they've ever done. This is i i love this album i uh, just it's not actually my favorite acdc album um i think that that's power age um but <clears throat> it is absolutely monstrous so early oh god when was it jan uh, 1979 january there's a meeting at um atlantic records new york headquarters and it's between Jerry Greenberg, who was the president of the label, the head of A&R, Michael Kleffner, and Michael Browning, who was ACDC's manager. And the label were deeply concerned because they'd invested quite a lot of money in the band and they failed to crack the American market. I mean, they hadn't even released, they hadn't bothered to release Dirty Deeds in America at all at that point. They were hoping that If You Want Blood, which was the album that preceded this one, would be kind of ACDC's Kiss, that Alive 1 and Alive 2 really broke Kiss to the American market. But it, it, the sales were disastrous. And Greenberg felt that Bon Scott was not the right vocalist for the American radio market, because in America, the radio market was everything. If you didn't get played on American radio, you didn't make it. And... He, not for the first time, actually, suggested that maybe they should look at getting a new singer for the band. And Browning resisted that quite vociferously. And 
the A&R guy, um, Michael Kleffner, said, well, if it's not going to be a new singer, maybe it should be a new production team. Because up until that point, of course, the band had been produced by Angus and Malcolm's older brother, George Young, and his writing partner, Harry Vander. And so that was the compromise. And um, Browning flew to Sydney and kind of broke the news to George Young and said, look, if you don't step aside, Atlantic will drop the band. And George Young reluctantly kind of agreed. And they hired a guy called Eddie Kramer. Now, Eddie Kramer had been, had either production or uh, engineering credits on albums that included both the Kiss Live albums and as an engineer on Led Zeppelin II, Houses of the Holy, Physical Graffiti and Coda. So he knew his stuff. The band fucking hated him because they saw that as an appointment by the Suits in New York. And basically, although Kramer began the recording process with them, he insisted that uh, they go and record at his Miami studio. And during the recording process, Angus and Malcolm Young were sending the, the demos back to George Young and Harry Vander, who were critiquing them, usually not particularly positively. And eventually it ended up in a blazing row where um, Malcolm Young, who essentially ran ACDC Inc., said, you either get this guy fired and we get a new producer or you're fired. So if it hadn't worked out that way, Mutt Lang wouldn't have even been involved in this project. And I think the fact that, Richard, you talk about the meticulous way that Bond particularly was managed. He was, at, you know, his drinking had got out of hand by this stage, and he was really hard to control. Um, and Mutt sat down with him and kind of talked him through the vocals on every track, and all of that thing where you talk about he's he's got that measured kind of vocal performance that all comes from Mutt. And even Angus Young, he insi Mutt insisted that Angus sit down next to him and do all of his solos, sat next to him at the, end, at the mixing desk. And Mutt was going, right, play that, play that, do that note, then you go to that note, then you go to that note, and literally walked him through every solo. And they established this kind of mutual respect and trust because... Angus Young went, no, Bond said, um, that was right. So uh, Mutt said to him, I want you to sing it in this particular way. And Bond went, well, if you're so fucking good, you do it. So he did. <laughs> and the thing was, Mutt never asked the band to do anything he couldn't do himself. Oh, because he could sing, couldn't he? That's he right. He could sing, he could write, he could play every instrument. So you know, you, you're in this situation where you've got, a production process that is carnage and yet out of it comes this amazing chemistry yeah. where one person who was never supposed to be involved in it to begin with is put in charge of managing this band that frankly were on the verge of being dropped by their label so he delivers this album that spends 40 weeks on the chart <laughs> draws 8.5 million pounds worldwide uh, sorry drives eight million eight and a half million sales worldwide and then follows it up with an album that does 30 million units thank you very much Mutt. 
So the, the band that couldn't be tethered was finally being micromanaged, and it yeah, it, absolutely, it yeah. yeah, yeah, to within yeah. an inch of their lives. I, I mean, I didn't, um, I, I didn't actually come to appreciate ACDC really till I met you, Mark, in '84. And so then, when I went and when I went back and looked at all their albums, it was quite a kind of scattergun approach in no particular order. I'm sure you'd advise me to listen to one or two other things, and. You've unsettled me again, boys, and I knew this had happened because this isn't my favourite ACDC Bon Scott era album. And I was going to say at the start, if if, if you were going to do an ACDC Bon Scott era compilation with 20 tracks on it, and I was going to say to you, I'd have one from Highway to Hell on it, and clearly you're now going to just laugh at me and say you clearly would have an awful <laughs> lot more than that. And I'd say I'm right and you're wrong, but clearly that's not going to work, is it, Rich? <laughs> I think I, oh, I mean, it's crumbs. Bon Scott here, ACDC is quite a catalogue to pick 20 songs for an album. Um, I think this, I mean, this album has got um, it, it, its ups and downs, and there's some, you know, some tracks that aren't as, as, as strong as others, but I think in terms of the whole, the variety, how it, how it hangs together, how it, the, the order of the songs and how it varies is um, is just brilliant, and I think it, it, it's in terms of something that, that you want to listen end to end. Yeah, uh, it, it it that it, it's the that it's the combination stuff that that makes it. Yeah. Well, I can I tell you what I, I I'm playing devil's advocate and and just just bear me out, okay? Where I think this falls down is. The whole, we know what ACDC are, that they were a group of, you know, red-blooded, testosterone-filled Aussie blokes who liked to shag a lot or at least sing about it. And that's that's fine. And there was an awful lot of, there was an awful lot of bawdy humour about what they did. And that's still, you know, you can't take tracks like The Jack seriously, can you, or a whole lot of Rosie. And that's still there on on this album. Yeah. I think that I go the three previous studio albums, forget forget the live one dirty deeds let there be rock and power ridge they've got well let there be rock Take let there be rock which is my favorite album it's eight tracks five of them are over five minutes long and i just think they let them all breathe dirty deeds has got four that are over five minutes long including ride on which is inevitably going over but also ain't no fun was seven minutes long and that could have gone on for 27 minutes and i'd still have loved it at the end because that the, the riff was so infectious and i just think that highway to hell and I take everything about what you said about each individual track and the differences within them. I get that. I just think it's so compact. They've just not kind of... I always thought ACDC were better when they had a glint in their eye rather than a full-blown hard-on. You know what I mean? When they were just getting a little bit, I don't know, boogie-woogie-ish and bluesy. And, and, and there's elements of it there, but I just... To me, it just left me a little bit cold. Some of the tracks. And it's classic. Listen, you'd buy this. You'd buy this album for the title track alone. Don't get yeah, me wrong. Absolutely right. But I, I challenge you not to move to every single track on this album. <sighs> yeah, but I'm not moving to them in the way that I moved to the pre. And yeah, okay, all right, yeah, fair cop. I'm not moving to them in the way I moved to the previous ACDC albums, which I just preferred, I guess. But y y you're <laughs> right. I just thought there was. I thought. I mean, take for example. I do love, um, I mean, take, for example, uh, Night Prowler, which is yeah. the closest thing to a down-tempo number on the album, yeah? Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an inferior ride-on, surely. 
No, I agree with that. I think Richard would agree with that because I think Ride On is just the ultimate. I mean, I was going to say ballad, but it's not a ballad even. But yeah. it's the ult lyrically that is an almost perfect song. Yeah. It, it, well, I think it's yeah. The, the, what I love about Ride On is it's it's autobiographical, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, yeah. It's a badge. It's, it's, it, you can't really compare light with light, can you? Because it's so damn good. So that's a bit unfair. But I mean, I'm tying myself up in knots here, Rich, to say that it's a great album. Don't get me wrong. And, and I love it to bits. And, and, and you're both right. I mean, I'm sitting and listening to it now and, and tapping my feet and nodding along. And, and, and you could not to. And, the, and there, were, there are highs on here, some incredible highs beyond just Highway to Hell. And Rich, you mentioned earlier Walk All Over You, which you know, is every bit as good as far as I'm concerned. That kind of quick, slow, slow, quick tempo and then that assault. I mean, it's just... Um, the, it same, is Steve, the same is true of Life Hungry Man. That just ramps and ramps and ramps and ramps and ramps. And it's, it is... Uh, interestingly, Angus and Malcolm refused to play it live. They hated it. But, okay. but I love that song. Yeah. You know, uh, and... I don't know, there's there's... I know, <laughs> I know this. I'm gonna, as I say this, I'm thinking it's so wrong. But the thing is, you can dance to this album. Now, whether that's whether that is important or not is an entirely yeah, different. Right, yeah, yeah. Is that a selling point? Yeah, and, I don't know. And I think the beauty of this album is, and the genius of it, Mutt's genius actually, is it transcends genres. It you, you could be into. Um, I mean, I'm not going to be ridiculous and say you could be into soul music and love this album. You're probably not going to. But whether you're a punk or you're a rocker or you're into pop music, you could listen to this album all the way through. Yeah. And you, you, you had the, there was the opportunity to love it. It is very punky. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you my other problem, and, it, and it's my problem and no one else's, is, is, is the danger of hindsight. Because you almost want it to be Bon Scott's autobiography don't you his, his yes, epitaph is a bit cheery yeah. um because he was you know not that he was dead at the time and clearly wasn't but he was dead a few months later and there's nothing so you, you're looking at it the wrong way around really but i was waiting for things that said that said ride on that said let there be rock that said gone shooting i was waiting for those moments of of, of breath you know just something a bit a bit cool i don't even know what i'm looking for but it's yeah, not well, what well, it is well, you have a point um that as Mark talked earlier about the genesis of this and then bringing Lange in and wanting to crack America. So I guess it makes sense. So this is, if you take everything that ACDC had done before, thrown it into a pot and distilled it into something that would beat somebody around the head <laughs> it's, that says, this is, this is Aussie hard rock, mate. Yeah. Um, this is what you get. And I think it, I, I I love it just because there is there is no there's no let up everything is turned up to 10 11 whatever yeah. um <laughs> you've you as you say Lange took each of them and what they did and absolutely honed it um so the 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 back line uh, between you know Williams and Rudd and the other massive thing is, yeah, just, and, and it's often not talked about, is it? It, it, it? it is, everyone talks about Angus, but about, you know, Malcolm, Malcolm's guitar on this, his riffs. I mean, 
it, the the opening riff to "If You Want Blood," that da 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 da, it is when it comes in, it's just so hard hitting. Um, so I think he did. He sort of distilled it. He really honed the, all of those individual elements. So it's not surprising it, it it doesn't let up. I would say, I mean, full disclosure, massive ACDC fan. Seen them thirty six times. You know, got everything they've ever released. Cut me, and you'll find ACDC's logo all the way through me. Um, but I think ACDC are all about the backline. That backline drives them forward always, and and they are when you see them live. Yeah, you know Williams, Rudd, Slade. Right, whoever happens to be occupying the kit at any given time, and particularly Malcolm, yeah. you know they know when to come forward. They know when to go. It's like a, it's like a military operation. Yeah. They come forward, but at, at the heart of every single song they ever wrote is that backline. Yeah, you know? and it's and it's better when it's allowed to go longer. <laughs> Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember back in the day? I'm sure. They, I'm sure they still play it. Well, they no, they don't. I didn't think they played last time. They did jailbreak, and it lasted about twenty minutes, and yeah, it was but, thundering. I mean, yeah, it was, oh, I can't even remember when that. Well, I can't remember what I did last week. Never mind. You know when that gig was, but um, that's the sort of thing they did, wasn't it? And that back oh, line was jailbreak live is my yeah. favourite live song. Uh, yeah. Absolutely no question. Absolutely no question because. Yeah. It's it's that kind of they hang you and 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 then suddenly that riff kicks straight back in and yeah. you're there aren't you it's just and I'm, I'm just talking about it now I've got shivers running up yeah yeah yeah, yeah yeah it's just an uh, it's a monstrous track it really is but it's a live track I yeah think. yeah fair comment so Steve who what would you say is the weak link on the album well on this album yeah. Well, I agree with Angus Young and um, Love Hungry Man for me. And if that's the low point, the high point? Well, as, I, as I think I said before, you'd buy this for the title track alone. And, um, you know, it's a work of art. Absolute work of art. Yeah, I, For me, um, the weakest, again, it's, it's all relative, isn't it, based on the company it's keeping. I, I feel is, is Get It Hot. Great song, nice groove. I mean, it's, it, it, or even when I first heard it, I... I was, when I was trying to persuade my mum that actually ACDC were all right, I said, well, it sounds a bit like status quo, mum, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, still a great song. I, I think for me, as well as um, Highway to Hell, the, 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 the song that is, is, a, is a 10 is, um, is touched too much. Okay. Um, and it's, again, before, before it, obviously, I mean, again, it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. But listen, listen to that that first verse. Um, listen to you can hear the, the the guitars are played a lot quieter. You can hear the strings on the guitars. It, it's a it's a, it's a it's a it's a dirty riff, and Bon Scott singing on it, particularly that first verse, is absolutely brilliant. Well, do you know what? I don't think we can talk about this album, or, or in fact, any Bon Scott album, without talking about lyrics. Because he was a, I mean, apart from anything else, he was a he was a contemporary poet. You know, he was. <laughs> uh, 
He was. He was a. He was a. Hang, he was, hang, on, hang on a minute. I was talking birds. You was talking bees. He was down on his knees, beating yeah, around the bush. Yeah, yeah. She wanted it. <laughs> she wanted it hot. She wanted it fast. She wanted it medium rare. What can you <laughs> argue with? You know, um, I, I shot down in flames. You know, I mean, God. Uh, yeah. Anybody want to hang out with me and make the party up? You know. Um, yeah. He he thought. Yeah. Every thought for Bond was kind of located somewhere around his groin. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, but he, he was he was lyric as, as a lyricist, he was a genius, an absolute genius. Um, you know, there are some, there are some, <laughs> some uh, you go back through the back catalogue, there are lyrics you could pick any number of lyrics where you just think the difference between Bino and Bon is lyrically Bon was far superior. I love Brian Johnson. I love Brian Johnson era ACDC. You know, I've I've enjoyed uh, some of my best nights have been in Brian Johnson's company and yours, Steve, and yours, Rich. But Bon uh, was was a class above. And yeah. as as a lyricist, I don't think there's I think there are many. Who can touch him for all of the cheese? I mean, you listen to Love Hungry, uh, sorry, Night Prowler. Um, yeah. yeah, that's verging on Alice Cooper schlock, really. But the music kind of gets him over that. Um, but everything else, it's really clever. Most of it is really clever. I don't know what you guys think. A lot, I, I really think <laughs> he, he, he's just writing what he's thinking. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Just it's, yeah. it's just, it's just him. Rosie. I mean, the, the opening to that, I mean, he takes, you know, he, he spends the night with a very large woman and his yeah. thought is not to be embarrassed about the fact, but to write a song about it that becomes actually one of their best known and most loved tracks of all time. Is it much loved because it's about sleeping with a very big lady or is it, is it is it a great track because actually the lyrics and the music together, the instrumentation together, just work. Yeah. I don't know. Back in Black, which is obviously the album that followed this. If if Bon had been alive, would the next album have sold thirty million copies? Discuss. No. Discuss. No, no, no. I mean, it, it was. It, I mean, forget the fact that four of the personnel were the same. It was a different band. It was the start of a new era, wasn't it? The, the, yeah. the, the difference in the vocals were, and indeed the song, the, the, the lyrics as well, was so colossal that it, it's like it was like starting again, wasn't it? I, personally, I, I felt cheated when he died because mm. I, I bought this album late in '79, and then he died what early '80, wasn't it? Early '1980, yeah. and and I thought, you bastard! I've just got yeah. into you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 actually it took me it then took me um a while to accept and get into um uh the, uh, brian johnson era acdc it took me years to buy um uh, back in black yeah um because i just really? felt well no i because i amazing again it's back to this album and loving it so much and 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 and, and bon and uh then he died at home. Hmm. Well, no, well, no, that's not ACDC. It took yeah. me a while. That's really interesting. Yeah, that, 
the, the, the different styles were so distinct, weren't they? That it, I get that, absolutely get that. Yeah. Do you? I, yeah. I, I just my my I remember you know 1980 when Back in Black came out. You know, I was 15, and um, and I just remember just being so so completely relieved that they were still going. Mm. And I went out and I bought that immediately. And oh my god! The, the, I mean, you know, most fifteen-year-old kids spend time alone in their rooms for one reason. I spent it in my room for another. Uh, you know, <laughs> just listen to that over and over and over and over again. And, and I just remember being relieved, being yeah. thinking, "Oh my god!" You know, I, I'm I am going to enjoy this band for a bit longer. It's, yeah, I I, I, reg- I certainly regret it now, but they my my that was my feeling at the, at the time. I completely get it. Um, Steve talked earlier about David Lee Roth as a frontman. Um, there's quite a lot of parallels between these the, these three albums. Um, I'll come on to another one in a minute, but but okay. So better frontman, Dave Lee Roth or Bon Scott? Discuss. Dave. As a, as a live, are you talking about as a live performer? Um, don't know. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I tell you what. If if you were to invite, if you were to invite either one of them round to dinner, I'd have them both. <laughs> Who would you? Okay, let's narrow that down a bit, Stephen. Okay. Yes. If you invited them both round for dinner, yeah. And you had to be stuck in a conversation with one of them. Yeah. Which one? Well, if if I had a taxi to catch, it would be Bon Scott because <laughs> the Roth just rambles and rambles. Um, no, seriously, I'd, I'd watch them both. I love them both. I'd listen to them both. But I think it's visually, I'd always uh, DLR. So would I. He's the diamond for a reason. Yeah. He shines mm-hmm. bright. As a spectacle, if you want theatre, you, you got it. Go with Roth, I think. What about you, Richard? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I think if you t- yeah, okay. So if we're talking about frontman spectacle showmanship, Dave has the edge. But but who uh, is the frontman of ACDC? Sorry, who is the frontman of ACDC? Yeah, well, that's a fair question. Yeah. That's the point I was going back to earlier about bands that had two superstars within their midst, and ACDC is certainly one of them. Both, both watching, generations of ACDC, yeah. incidentally. If you're watching ACDC, who are you watching? Yeah. Because I know who I am. Yeah. It's not Bon and it's not Brian. No. And no. if I'm watching Van Halen, it's not Eddie. That no, exactly. no, that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which I hadn't really thought about until now, until you yeah. asked the question. So it's a really good question. But... I'm watching Angus all day long. Yeah, I think other you know, the other potentially boring parallel is around is is again back to guitars and um, you know we talked earlier about Eddie chopping and changing and creating his own guitar and the same was true of um, of Malcolm. He, he got this um, oh, what was the make uh, a Gretsch? Yeah, he's, he's got a Gretsch guitar again that he pulled pickups out of and he wanted a guitar apparently that didn't go out of tune. That he could hit um, absolutely massively in terms of his, his the, the the chords. Apparently, he had a couple of these guitars. He recorded with them. He wrote on them. He took them on tour with him, 
and yeah, and uh, he, he 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 added sort of three little chrome discs from some hardware studio because uh, hardware store because he thought they looked good, and that was the guitar he played with for all of his life. Did ACDC make it because Mutt produced Highway to Hell? He was he was a big number, wasn't he, at that time? Well, not not massively as a producer. Did I mean, he become he, did he become bigger then later on? I just yeah. know the name very well from other bands, but he 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 when he arrived <laughs> when he arrived to produce Highway to Hell, do you know what his the last thing he produced was? No. I don't like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats. No. So well, you he, see, how, see why he tightened them up. Yeah, yeah. He was absolutely everything he did was counterintuitive to the way the band had worked before. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he hard, I mean, hard, yeah, he'd hardly done it. Don't done really any um, hard rock, heavy rock. Obviously, then this was his launch pad, wasn't it? Because he then, I mean, he worked with Foreigner. Obviously, I mean, Def Leppard. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. I know he married her, but I'm always slightly disappointed. He went on and produced Shania Twain. <laughs> It's a personal thing, but you know, yeah, that won't be on his headstone. No, it won't. You're absolutely right. You know, you're not going to be remembered for that, are you? All through that, we didn't talk about uh, Bond's fondness for uh, Mork and Mindy, did we? God, we should have done that. We should have done that. In fact, let's do it now. Is that the best ever sign off of any album you've heard? <laughs> I mean, I presume. Well, that's he, a question. Is that I hadn't looked into it. I presume he did just finish. They finished it, and he just thought, "I'm going to say that," and they kept it in. I guess so. Yeah. I can't believe it was placed Switched. deliberately. No. No. Well, not given everything you've just said about Mutt Lange, he just would. He wouldn't have tolerated such silliness and frivolity, would he? Surely. <laughs> but clearly, he 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 got that there needed to be some sort of irreverence. Yeah. Frivolity. Yeah. Something, that that was the band, that they were very spontaneous. They yeah. were very in the moment. Yeah. But the last words Bon Scott said on a record. Yeah. I bought the album when I was, I was 13. And that, that the impact of that album on me then has stayed to this day. Voting for these and scoring these albums how much is it down to an you know, objective assessment versus a Jesus Christ, this is just so good. Yeah. I think Jesus Christ, this is so good is a massive player in your uh, scoring system. Yeah, I do. Don't you? Yeah. It's all, about, it's all about emotion. Totally. Totally. So there's Highway to Hell. And uh, bringing up the rear is uh, our third album of the night, Judas Priest's British Steel. Opening album sleeve notes. Right, so that's um, so that's two albums done. And uh, without wishing to preempt anything, I would humbly wager that both Van Halen and Highway to Hell are uh, well on their way to the Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame. And that leaves, that leaves one to go. So, Mark, what was your first album that you ever bought? So I'd like to talk to you about fitting in. I don't know about you guys, but for me, I needed to know about the stuff that I should know about. 
and everybody I knew knew about Judas Priest. I'd already been given, if you want blood, you've got it, by ACDC. And, but before that, I'd been into, well, no, I hadn't been into, I hated it, but I pretended to be into kind of soul music. So, you know, dapper belts and, because that's what the girls were into. And I was really kind of interested in girls. <laughs> and they weren't into heavy metal. And I wasn't into heavy metal at the time. And then I heard, I was walking down the street and there was a guy with a boombox in front of me playing, if you want blood, uh, playing a whole lot of Rosie, actually. And I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> so I managed to persuade my parents to buy me, if you want blood. And they became an instant favourite, ACDC. And I thought, my God, there, there's a whole world out here that I haven't even been exposed to. I, I, I know nothing. It's like the dark web, you know. <laughs> um, so I need to, I need to learn. I need to be a sponge and get knowledge. And and everything pointed to Judas Priest. <laughs> Judas Priest and White Snake and Rainbow and. Um, Iron Maiden and God knows what else. But I felt like it would be really cool to own a Judas Priest album. And it just so happened when I was 15 that this was the new album, um, British Steel. And I didn't know any of the background that I now know. I didn't know any of the context. I just thought it was a really cool logo. It was a really cool album cover. I was, I don't know about you guys, but everything that I listened to when I was in my mid-teens was about, I needed it to be loud and heavy. It had to be loud, it had to be heavy, it had to be fast. And actually, do you know what? Judas Priest kind of ticked all of those boxes. <laughs> um, and I didn't know any of, I didn't know any of the band members. I didn't know, I had no knowledge. I'd heard Breaking the Law, which was kind of how I'd become aware of them as a single and so i went out and i bought it and it was kind of i liked the album cover and i bought a lot of albums over the years based on i liked the album cover uh and i'm sure that you you guys that will resonate with you too as well yeah absolutely the other thing i remember about judas priest of course and you talked breaking the law was that the first single was it living no, after midnight living after midnight was the first yeah. of course back in the day it, 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 you only demonstrated your cool by knowledge of Top of the Pops, didn't you? That was the only music you had access to. And they were on there quite a yeah. lot, as I recall. And yes, you, couldn't help, you, you couldn't help but think, well, this is exciting. Yes. This is, you know what I mean? Yeah. This, this isn't Donna Summer. This is exciting. <laughs> yeah, precisely. And I just, there was, even at that age, though, at 15, I looked at Rob Halford and I went, there's something quite different about you. <laughs> um, and as and, the years went by, you discovered quite how much difference there was. Yeah. But do you know what? The, the difference was really the fact he didn't have long hair. Yeah, I, yeah. It wasn't yeah. a gay thing. Yeah. I just went, why have you got short hair if you're in a heavy metal band? I don't yeah. get it, you know? I felt the um, same about the bloke in um, in Rainbow. Who was, the, who was or Deep for oh, No? Graham, Graham Bonnet. Graham Bonnet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I felt exactly the same about that. So, yeah, you know, as we're talking, you know, I've got this album in my ear and we're currently listening to Metal Gods, which was the point at which I went, oh, my God, yeah. this is just awesome. 
Um, and but I think the, the 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 thing about Judas Priest is it is an acquired taste. You know, you need to. I don't think Rob Halford is an easy listen first time round. And what did it for me was was the, those twin guitars of KK Downing and Glenn Tipton, and they were never better than when those two were dueling on guitars. Mm. But the I think the thing about British Steel was that it was an honest album. What I've learned since, of course, is that they they needed to be more commercial. Uh, you know, they they'd already released a, a, a very commercial album in Killing Machine, which in America was released as Hellbent for Leather, um, and they would go on and and be more and more commercial as they went through. So this was kind of their most commercial release to date, but there was something that it was raw and it was real and it was and it was visceral and. And it was everything that actually I, I believed Judas Priest would be before I listened to them. Because I, I, apart from breaking the law, I kind of bought this sight unseen, yeah. and and it didn't disappoint. And I think every th- th- there are some low points on the album. There are some low points on every Judas Priest album, I would yeah. argue. Um, but there are many of them, and there are some really interesting uh, musical choices that they make and directions that they go in mm. so um this for me was a vanity buy i needed to have judas priest in my collection it wasn't i heard judas priest and went wow i love judas priest it was i needed that band in my record collection at that time and happened to really like what they did interesting what do you know what I was thinking when I when I listened? I mean, I remember this originally. I've, I've got it on tape, and um, and I remember thinking, if you were, if you were to name me one of the great Nwobam bands, we don't need to explain what Nwobam is, do we? New Wave well, British. Frankly, if we need to explain what Nwobam is, then you're in the wrong room, and the Spice yeah. Girls podcast is down the hall on the left. You would, you would, people would say this was one of the great Nwobam albums. Because it because of the date of its release, yeah. In actual fact, they weren't a new wave band at all. Whether they've been no. around for donkey's years, yeah, seventy four rock and roll. But, actually, but but they they knew they knew what they needed to do, I think, and and they could see these young English upstarts, British upstarts, coming up with all this new, you know, angry young metal scene that was coming on the scene, and I just think they just thought, you know, well, we got up, we got to up our game, um, and boy, did they! And they, they weren't the only ones. I think. Um, You'd know better than me. Black Sabbath didn't they? Didn't they produce Heaven and Hell uh, about the same yeah, time? Nineteen eighty. Um, same. Yeah. And Motorhead, Ace of Spades was that nineteen yeah. eighty? Again, had been around for a long time, but got kind of caught up a little. Well, certainly Motorhead and, and Judas Priest got caught up in that new wave thing, which they weren't, but they just tapped into it and produced pretty much better than anyone else, which uh, yeah. was, was was the power to their songwriting skills, if nothing else, and the power, the power of the band. Yes, absolutely, and and they they w- recorded this album um, at Ringo Starr's house. It was originally supposed to be in his studio, which was in the garden, but they didn't like it, so they moved into the house. And apparently, Ringo Starr had hidden or or kind of put away all of the stuff that might be broken, because uh, you know, obviously, <laughs> a heavy metal band moving into your house. 
there's some scope for damage. Um, but what what I love about the kind of the backstories of this album is that is the really kind of Heath Robinson way they recorded it. Yeah. So you've got in Metal Gods, you've got this at, right at the end. They've got this relentless. You know how you guys know how much I love a relentless riff. You know, but at the end of it, they've got this kind of relentless riff going, and it's got this odd sound over it, uh, and that's a cutlery drawer being shaken. <laughs> they had to take knives and forks out and put knives and put spoons in to get exactly the right sound that they wanted. And then breaking the law, which is currently in my ear. Yeah. Um, in fact, at exactly this moment, that. All of that breaking glass, they were smashing milk bottles on Ringo Starr's doorstep to record that. And the sirens that you hear, they recorded those at the end of Ringo Starr's drive as police cars went by on some emergency call. And it's kind of so kind of of the moment, you know. Yeah. It's amazing, actually. The, I, I, love, the, I love the fact that, you know, is Metal God still Metal Gods when you know that it's Ringo Starr's cutlery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> Maybe more than ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Living After Midnight, uh, that was the, written after K.K. Downing and Glenn Tipton were jamming downstairs in Ringo Starr's house on their electric guitars. <laughs> And Rob Halford appears in the doorway in his dressing gown to turn, to turn it down because he's trying to sleep. And so Living After Midnight was kind of a, a a story about people who kind of stay up late and have fun. But it was all, all stems from that moment in, in the recording studio. The whole thing, I don't know about Heath Robinson and, and what you thought was amazing at the time. I mean, I, I, I mean, I got I got into this album um, from just hearing the separate tracks. So, Rapid Fire was on a, a compilation album I had, I had called Killer Watts, um, and Breaking the Law was on a compilation album I had called Axe Attack. Yeah, I, I had that. Yeah. Um, and um, and I bought United on single. Um, on the strength of seeing them play it on top of the pops. Yeah. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the B side of United was Grinder, which so, I think it will come back to. I, I, my, 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 it's my favorite track on the whole album. Um, and so, so yeah, so I, so I had four, I had four of the tracks. I mean, and um, my, the United single was um, uh, wrapped in a, a, a poster, a fold, a fold out poster. Um, and you you folded it out, and uh, you could see it was a picture where they'd been forced to do you know something. And uh, you know those uh, oh, described now. You know that those square the, the square towers of scaffolding that are sort of made of layers that that you can roll around on wheels that you lock. Yeah. Um. They they were all um they were all um posing on this scaffolding. So it was in a studio in a photo studio nothing else around this sprayed red uh, little scaffolding tower on wheels and they are all hanging off it and he just, I just looked looked at the time and thought why 
Because <laughs> it's steel. <laughs> <laughs> I'll still put it on the wall. It's also interesting that there was this whole kind of hot dead of hard rock, heavy metal going on in the West Midlands. You've got Black Sabbath there. You've got Judas Priest there. Two of the biggest British bands that we'll ever produce. And that's clearly important to them, actually, because there are references to their beginnings, for want of a better word, throughout British Steel, not least British Steel, the title, which I think was Ian Ian Hill, wasn't it? It came up with that. The bassist came up with that album, uh, that album title. But I I agree with you, Richard. Grinder. let's talk about Grinder, because is there a better riff? No, anywhere than Grinder. No, that 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 opening that is just a phenomenal start to a track. I mean, you're at that point where you think the album actually can't get any better, but yeah. then it does, you know. And it's, but that's what I like about this. Is I mean, Grinder is just is just the relentless track, one of many relentless tracks on this album. It's just, I mean, it it's is just a more rock, doesn't it? It it is an epic side one. Yes, yes. we're going to talk yeah. as we do these around around orders of tracks. I'm sure and we we you know, we, we were we were going to um, have a session where we we played each other the best ever tried side two track one. Yeah. Um, but just want to listen to all the other. There's some yeah, there's some there's some good stuff on side two. Obviously, um, yeah. living after midnight. Well, the best track on the the best track on the album. But as a as a side one, rapid fire, metal gods, breaking the law, grinder, and united. Jesus <laughs> Christ! <laughs> I actually, I actually took a bit of time warming to United, and I, and and that was that was simply an age thing because I'd have been what fifteen, probably nineteen eighty. So you know, like like any good middle class middle England grammar school boy, I was very politically motivated, you know, despite no reality of of sort of anti-Thatch, pro-CND, all that nonsense. And every time I I listened to United, and especially when I saw it on top of the pops being sung by this um, short-haired lead singer, I just thought it was some sort of nationalist call to art, especially from an album called British Steel. And of course, it was nothing of the sort. It was just simply a right good chant. I'm listening to it now. It was just a right good chant along, you know? I mean, that's what it was. Um, Let me ask you a question, guys. Let me ask you a question. Is there a is there a better anthem than this? Yeah, I know. Yeah, and that's what it was, wasn't it? That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think they played it live quite sparingly, didn't they? As I recall, but it was well, um, often. Yeah, um, but I remember when my kids were really young. Um, this was on a an, an iPod playlist. Yeah, and I used to play this in the car, driving them around. Not not relentlessly, that would be child abuse. But <laughs> generally, it would turn up quite regularly on a playlist. And I have vivid rem- memories in the sort of early noughties of my kids singing this at the tops of their voices. Yeah. And, and I think that's a measure of something, isn't it? Where it connects with kids who don't know what they're singing, don't really understand the lyrics... Don't yeah. understand the political motivation of it. Yeah. But they, Which there was now, to be fair. That was just me. No, I think there was. I mean, at the end of the 70s, it was a tough time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the industry. 
I feel the podcast coming on, Mark. Tracks that tracks that our kids have sung along to in the back of cars. But yeah, and and but the the fact was that the composition inspired them to sing, and I just think that is the ultimate definition of an anthem. You know, yeah. a, a three year old and a six year old singing this at the tops of their voices. You know, they, and I I tell them now. I say you used to sing Judas Priest songs in the car. And they are absolutely mortified. So that's, that's, that's side one. Can I just tell you that the best track of the album is on side two? I, I agree with you. The Rage. I, I wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> well, actually, no, I don't. So the best song for me on the album is is Grinder, followed very closely by Metal Gods. But I think I think the one that we're all listening to at the moment. Okay. Obviously, the listeners can't hear. Is also pretty special. Yeah, yeah. Don't have to be old to be wise. Yeah. What is the weak point on the album? Hard to find. So, how well did you two know this album before this kind of research was? Well, I knew it, I knew it very well, but okay. I, I, I bought it in tape form um, in in nineteen eighty one, and uh, remember loving it at the time. You know, this is about a year after its release. I just, I just remember just thinking, this is what, this is what rock's all about. I mean, much as I love Van Halen and that sort of, you know, California vibe, this, this was just no nonsense in your face, you know, spit it and smile, heavy metal, and I loved it. And that's why I go back to, um, and Rob, Hal- Rob Halford's vocals are, are everything that this, that this band are about, and and that's why. I would I would advise anyone to listen to the Rage, which is which is him his absolute best vocally, I think. You know, it's it's um A the tracks of beauty, but his voice there is is sensational. And um yeah, I, I just think I, I don't, there's not a weak track on the album. Mm. Well I'd I'd like to come back to the rage in a minute because I think there are some parallels between what was going on in Pop music at the time with the rage. Let's come oh, yeah. To that. Richard, what low yeah, point? I, I, I what I've enjoyed this last week is is listening to side two more. Um <laughs> was actually what I what I tended to do was just listen to side one. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean for me I I think yeah, I mean ultimately wise, yeah, good track. I mean, none of these are scoring low in, in my, you know, in my opinion. The Steeler as well. It's it's a perfectly good track, uh, but I think those two are the the lower points for me. The yeah, the rage, the rage. Yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, that's good. I think it's as good as United. Um, but I don't think. I mean, for me, it's the the, the big ones are, um, you know, living after midnight, grinder, uh, breaking the law. So, so Steeler, I think, is a an average track. Right up until the end, when that riff kicks in, and it just goes and goes and goes and goes yeah, yeah. and goes, yeah. and, and and I I would have scored that probably I don't know five or a six right up until yeah. that point. Yeah, and then you go, I absolutely bloody love this. It's the perfect out track, isn't it? Yeah, completely. Yeah. Completely. That's another quiz question. What's your favourite out track? I won't even bother because you've not thought about it, but I was thinking about that when we were talking about other stuff and you're going to do well to Trump when the levee breaks. 
But I think oh, Steeler is... Um, oh, my God, you're right. I mean, well, that whole album, uh, uh, we'll come to that. I'm sure that's yeah. going to turn up. Yeah. But, yeah. but well, Steeler is the finishing number. Yeah, the way that finishes off is, um, yeah, just you, you can't wait for the next album. One of the I was thinking about was, yeah, I'm getting this right, I don't know, about the Outlaw Torn being the end of Load. Yeah. Um, which we a couple of us have said, where it goes into basically a Judas Priest riff um, yeah. uh, as, as it as it fades out. Um, again, all of these, all of these, these it, the last track bit is just that one relentless riff going on and on and yeah. on and on. And and I think that's the thing, isn't it? Judas Priest are Downing and Tipton. Without those two, yeah, I, I have huge amounts of respect for Rob Halford. I think yeah, he brings so much to that party. But actually, Judas Priest are all about the guitars. They're all about that twin lead guitar um, approach. And you listen to the riffs. If, if they didn't have those two kind of sitting front and centre... Would, would it be the same band? No, it wouldn't. Absolutely wouldn't. You know? and, they're not, and they're not celebrated, are they, in the in the sort of pantheon of Axsmiths? They're not... Um, no. You know, they're almost seen as journeymen guitarists, but the yeah. band the same without them. Yeah. Uh, they are absolutely integral, I think, because everything's built on their riffs. So, um, Living After Midnight was the first single. Did better, oddly enough, than Breaking the Law, which is the one that everybody remembers. And then the, I think the third single off the album was United. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, they're the three obvious ones. They're, they're clearly the three commercial ones, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, off. Uh, so in terms of their back catalogue, Judas Priest had three top 10 albums, seven top 20 albums, and 11 top 30 albums out of 16 albums in total. It's not a bad track record. No. But I'm not sure that they are... I suppose I, I don't think they are given the credit they deserve, actually. I think that's what it comes down to. That you know, British Steel is a well-known, well-regarded, kind of pivotal album for the genre. But where do yeah. they rank in people's consciousness? Well, I'm a, any any bloke who rides on the stage on a motorbike, you kind of leave yourself a bit open to uh, to uh, to a bit of flack, don't you? From uh, it, it's 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 quite kitsch, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, which is kind of the point, actually. It is. It's all part of the show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and it, it's um. And I wonder it's how off target though for people who think that you know heavy metal is just cliched. Well, the three of us have now got the rage in our ears. I know. Okay, so I'm thinking ten cc boomtown. Yeah. Lights. For me, this this is a clash song. This sounds yeah, like Clash. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, it, I think it's influenced by what was going on in pop music at the time. It's almost reggae ish. Yeah. It's 10cc. 
it is Boomtown Rats, it is The Clash, it's The Police. But then, it becomes, but then it becomes Judas Priest. And then it becomes Judas Priest. Absolutely, it becomes Judas Priest. And yeah. they kind of go, okay, we've kind of done our commercial bit, now we're just going to play guitars. Yeah. Yeah. Do I think it's the best track on the album? No. Do I think it's a great track? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I think it's the dar- it's the darkest track on the album. It's the most menacing. I just love. I mean, that that, that final lyric. Halford's voice in this is brilliant. And when it comes to that last, you know, like a tiger in the cage, yeah, we into shape. It's just, it's just awesome. I mean, as in power, awesome. I mean, it's um, yeah, it's not, a piece of work. But he's not reaching for the notes. No, is he? Whereas he is on some of the other tracks on this album. This shows his range. Actually, this shows he can sing. Yeah, yeah, it's a great track. Great track. It is. It's it is. my one ten out of ten on this album. Is it? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so here we are. So the rage is your favourite. Is your strong point. The weak point is. Well, again, it's all relative, as as people have said before. I mean, and, and I do love it, but I just can't forget my upbringing and united gets um gets gets the lowest mark but you know still it's a great track it's a great track and why why is that politically why is that yeah so it was it was just it just reminded me of, of being back as a student and and thinking this is like some sort of you know thatcherite chorus and it was um you know it was, it was anything but i could happily okay. sit in the back of the car with your kids i mean you know in a in a you know, in a safe way, at distance, and, <laughs> and, and, and to it, no problem at all. But back in the day, it just it troubled me. But why could not? Why could this not be the the workers at Wapping, or you know, insert protest of your choice? Why yeah. could it not be their anthem? Well, it could have been, but I was fifteen at the time and and had an agenda, and that was it. So um, you, you you can you can you can try to talk me out of it as much as you like, but that's no, how. No, no, I'm just I'm just interested in <laughs> why you applied a white uh, a right wing bias to it. I think it was the short hair that finished it off. I just thought that that's, <laughs> that's, that, that's, wrong. that's wrong in a in a rock front man. How dare he? Okay, so Rob, <laughs> I, think, I think we've proven here that uh, those old felt emotions. Are absolutely fixed. And yeah. with boring song, yeah. you are not going to get around them. <laughs> see, I see this as I, I see United as the um, we're not going to take it. Twisted Sister. Yeah, okay. that's, that's what I think. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an anthem against oppression. Yeah. Okay. So United is the low point, the rage is the high point. Rich, yours? Yeah, as I said earlier, the the, the, the Steeler and Old and Wise aren't quite as not not by much, but not not quite as good as others. It's it's not nothing's low in here. Um, and then um, yeah, I mean grind grinders just just the the top, and it is it, it it's that riff, it's that that. That, that starter riff, and then when everything else comes in, thank you very much. So I, I, I've got the top is tied for me between Metal Gods and Grinder, um, And it's all, <laughs> as you might imagine with me, is all to do with the riffs. Um, 
I, I just love the the relentlessness of the riffs on both of those tracks. So those are my two favourites. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the weak link is um, Rapid Fire, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. And not for any reason. It's so close. I've scored between... <laughs> I've scored the album between 6.8 and 8.8. So it's not, there's not a huge gap in anything. So it's not they're bad songs. It's just that if I put them in order of songs that I would want to listen to, um, Rapid Fire would, would be the, the one that I would listen to last. Steeler, interestingly, um, is one, two, three. It's my fifth favourite song on the album. In terms of kicking the album off with Rapid Fire, uh, name a better first line to the first track of any song than pounding the world like a battering ram. Fair point, well made. Is that the song that contains the made-up word? Um, Sorry, what was the made-up word? Was it desolizing? Yes, it's (laughs) a made-up word. It's a made-up word. It is, isn't it? Yes. What happened there? I don't know, but it, you know, they got away with it. Or not, as we've <laughs> just proved. Yes. You know, it's, it's, you know, 40 years on, but actually you thought you got away with it. We've picked yeah, it up. That's right. And we're still being pedantic now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of your earlier comment, Steve, about Nawabam, yeah, obviously all the, all the new bands coming through, your, you know, your Def Leppards and your Maidens. Then you had the Motheads and the Def and, uh, and Judas Priests actually just stepping up another gear or two. Mm. I, I, don't, I don't actually know what what caused it. Uh, it was was it actually an audience thing and actually people just responding to this much much more? Because for me, I thought that it was the Judas Priests and the and the Motheads that that actually. Then had a had an audience had a that suddenly their music was was being you know responded to reacted to and they ab, they absolutely belted it and that then allowed all of the other younger bands to 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 ride in behind it I don't know that's a really interesting thought yeah chicken and egg situation isn't it which came first yeah I don't I, I, yeah I couldn't answer that because um, there was clearly. You know, but within within the confines of this really hard aggressive album, which it is, you know, there was commercial success as well. Were they all were they all getting the idea that commercial success was about to follow with these new wave bands? I don't know. Um, as we know, it did certainly with, with two or three of them, um, spectacularly in the case of someone like Def Leppard, where Judas Priest were never quite going to go. Obviously, but as for you know, who brought the best out of who? I don't know. I think the world got fed up with the kind of the, the aggressive approach of punk. Yeah. And well, very quickly, yeah. They wanted an outlet to express themselves that wasn't aligned with violence, wasn't aligned with anarchy, wasn't aligned with anti establishment um, tendencies. And what they got was, was this. They got mm. Judas Priest. They got Motorhead. They got angry music. Yeah. But it was a fraternity and a community. And you you listen to I don't know. You listen to Overkill or Bomber or 
No Sleep Till Hammersmith, and and we'll get to those albums in due course. And it was renegade, and it was rebellious, but it it wasn't lawless, you know. But what would you? But Mark, what would I mean? What Judas Priest were around before that, of course. I mean, I I, I, I can't remember ever listening to. I don't think. I mean, Rock and Roller, for example. Yeah, I mean, I that, that yeah. was. Well, that was what I mean. Sad Wings of Destiny. What 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 sort of albums were they? Well, the, they were they were out of their time. I think pre-punk, of course. Yeah, pre-punk. Well, they're, um, they're, I mean, they formed in quite quite a different lineup. But I mean, they're, they're formed in nineteen sixty-nine. But the what? Do you know what? I'm not suggesting that Judas Priest were ahead of their time. But what I would say is, I don't think the world was ready for Judas Priest. I don't think the world was ready for Black Sabbath. I think they were they were out of time. And I think what happened was society coalesced into a an entity that was in the late seventies and early eighties that was they wanted to protest. They wanted to be individual. They wanted to be unique, but without the the the, the lawlessness that was associated with the skinhead and the punk movement. I mean, I, you know, I, I love, you know, I'm quite happy to listen to Nevermind the Bollocks or um, the great rock and roll swindle. But I think the world moved on and they wanted something that allowed them to express themselves, something that was rebellious, but that was their own. They could own, they could control and they could create a community. In I mean, it all sounds a bit deep and wanky, but... I think that was what it is. I think I think people wanted to be to belong, but didn't want to be aligned with the establishment. And this was a great way to do that. When I went to you know, the rock and metal discos at the time, it was just a, it was a release, but it yeah. wasn't wasn't it wasn't violent. Um, it was actually about the music and enjoying the music, but it was about escape. So we've listened to three amazing records. This is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. So that's it from me, Steve, and Richard for another week. Uh, Thank you very much for listening to the inaugural Enter Sad Men podcast. Next week, we'll be back. And this time, we're going to be looking at our favorite albums of all time. So join us then. Uh, Again, thank you very much for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. Hope it's been interesting. We've had a blast. Hope you have too. We'll see you next week. 